It's Friday, January 1st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. One of the main keys to preventing COVID-19 indoors is proper ventilation. Health scientists have started to issue recommendations to schools and businesses that want to reopen on how often indoor air needs to be replaced, as well as fans, filters, and other equipment that needs to be replaced. For schools, think open windows with fans, air purifiers, and upgraded HVAC systems. Caitlin McCabe, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how good ventilation can help keep coronavirus particles at bay. Next, there is no COVID baby boom that some suspected there might be. In fact, Americans aren't making babies, and that could be bad for the long-term economy. Some estimates say there could be 300 to 500,000 fewer babies born next year, which leads to fewer consumers, workers, and taxpayers down the road. Peter Coy, economics director at Bloomberg Businessweek, joins us for the American Baby Bus. Finally, the culture war over face coverings continues and it has been a big problem for retail and service workers across the country who are yelled at and sometimes assaulted for asking patrons to wear masks. They have become the primary enforcers for social distancing guidelines inside restaurants and shops, even as some think wearing a face mask infringes on their rights. Emily Davies, reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for how anti-maskers put businesses on edge. News without the noise. Let's dive in. The thinking is that you want fewer COVID particles accumulating in a room and ventilation, which is really just introducing clean air into a space and getting that existing air that may contain COVID particles out. Joining us now is Caitlin McCabe, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Caitlin. Thank you so much for having me. As we keep talking about reopening the country and kids going back to school, businesses starting to let their employees back in. Uh, one of the big things that everybody talks about is ventilation and how important that is. You know, we've been talking about how people get COVID-19 by sitting in a room with people talking loudly, viral particles going everywhere. And if there's poor ventilation, that stuff's going to hang around. And there's increasing evidence that people are getting it not just from the big respiratory droplets that fall to the ground very quickly, but there's growing evidence about how COVID-19 could be aerosolized and just be lingering around in the air for longer periods of time. So that's why ventilation is so important. So, Caitlin, tell us how health scientists and mechanical engineers have started issuing recommendations on what to do, how to keep that ventilation moving. So like you said, scientists are seeing more evidence that indicates that COVID-19 can probably be spread through tiny aerosols that linger in the air. And so one way to tackle that among other initiatives like wearing masks and social distancing is having good ventilation in an indoor space, whether that's a classroom or an office or something else. And so the thinking is that you want fewer COVID particles accumulating in a room and ventilation, which is really just introducing clean air into a space and getting that existing air that may contain COVID particles out. So there are a lot of different strategies that scientists are looking at, whether it's opening windows, rejiggering HVAC systems, looking at portable air purifiers. So they've really started putting out some good solutions and walking uh, schools and offices through some different scenarios about how that can be achieved. Let's say for a school, ideally you would want open windows so you get clean air from outside. You want to use some fans to help circulate that air. And then you want to have some air purifiers with some HEPA filters, things like that. 
the two main ways of tackling ventilation are increasing outdoor air inside and then also having good filters that can filter out that contaminated air. And so it's really good if you have those systems working together. And a lot of modern HVAC systems can kind of tackle those on their own. And so if you have a really modern HVAC system, that's really helpful. But there are a lot of schools, as we know, that don't have HVAC systems or they have really outdated HVAC systems that might be decades old. And so that's why scientists are starting to issue some good guidelines about the things that you said, looking at air conditioning, window fans are a possibility, air purifiers, and more. About 41% of U.S. public school districts need to upgrade or replace their HVAC systems in at least half of their schools. So that's about 36,000 schools nationwide. That's a lot of money. And I think you pointed to Denver Public Schools who was already doing some of this. How much money are they spending to revamp their HVAC systems? They're spending about $5 million. That's going to be spread over about 185 school and administrative buildings. And that's just purely for HVAC systems alone. So that's not looking at any other supplementary materials like those air purifiers that I just mentioned. So basically they're spending that to upgrade filters, to replace broken parts, to try to get more outdoor air flowing through the HVAC system, which is a good strategy that scientists recommend. But that's just one school district. And obviously this is going to be a challenge across the nation and even in workplaces too that might be working in older buildings. You know, we're talking about schools, for example, open the window, throw a fan in there. That's going to be really tough when winter comes around. What do you do? (laughs) Make sure every kid has two coats on just to keep that airflow going. That's going to be really hard. It is going to be really tough. And scientists acknowledge that. And so that's why they're really encouraging workplaces to make these HVAC investments now to really try to stock up on purifiers and make sure that these classrooms and other spaces have these portable air purifiers with HEPA filters, which are shown to be effective at filtering out airborne particles. Just back to a little bit to how the aerosolized particles can move around and infect people. You had a couple examples in your story. One was about a restaurant in China with a few people sitting in a poorly ventilated room. Some of the people were seated as far away as 15 feet away from the infected person, but they still got it. So there have been several outbreaks like this. This restaurant in China is one of them, but there have been several other examples where people have been distanced further away than the six feet recommended distance that we all hear about so often and kind of have ingrained in our heads at this point. There have been cases where an infected person is in that room and people at further distances can still contract the virus. And so the thinking is it's because of these smaller aerosolized particles that are emitted when we cough, talk, sneeze, thing, do all these activities that we tend to do. So that's why ventilation is so important in that Chinese restaurant that I I referenced in the story. You had no outdoor air supply on the floor where the patrons were sitting in that restaurant. They had exhaust fans in the wall, but they weren't turned on. And there were several other indicators that ventilation was really poor in that space. And so researchers are concluding that's one of the reasons why so many people, I think it was about 10 people total became infected from that incident, including the one person who was kind of the index patient in that case. But that's why they think it spread. Caitlin McCabe, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. You may be worried about whether you get a paycheck. You may be worried about being in hospitals at a time when there are going to be patients with COVID there. 
So, yeah, I mean, it's completely logical when you think about it that the birth rate would fall. Joining us now is Peter Coy, economics editor at Bloomberg Businessweek. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Thanks for having me on. One of the side effects of the pandemic, when this all started right away, everybody says, oh, man, there's going to probably be be a bunch of COVID babies, pandemic Mm -hmm. babies, whatever you want to call it. That was kind of the thought line at the beginning. It's actually kind of what everybody always thinks when uh, there's a natural (laughs) disaster or something. But we're kind of seeing some early indicators that that might not play out. Some estimates say that there could be uh, as much as 300 to 500,000 fewer babies born next year. Tell us a little bit about this, Peter. That figure you just mentioned is from a Brookings Institution estimate. And it turns out that people who are going through a pandemic and a deep recession just aren't in the mood for having a lot of babies. It just doesn't seem like the right thing to be doing. Right. And you can kind of understand. I mean, you may be worried about whether you could have a paycheck. You may be worried about being in hospitals at a time when there are going to be patients with COVID there. So, yeah, I mean, it's completely logical when you think about it that the birth rate would fall. That number from Brookings, 300 to 500,000 fewer, is, is roughly a 10% decline from the normal number of births that would have been expected for next year. And, you know, one of the things my article gets into is some of the other evidence for that, but also, like, what happens next? For example, if it were just a slight postponement where the births would be made up for after things get better, then it wouldn't really be very meaningful. It'd just be a little notch. But if they don't get made up for, then we're going to have a long-lasting hole in the population that COVID put in there. Yeah, and that's one of the difficulties. There seems to be a lack of time to recover. And, uh, you know, uh, these recoveries, everybody says, oh, well, everybody will bounce back. They don't always bounce back the same way. Well, exactly. Think about it. If you're a woman who's uh, 38 years old and you realize the clock is ticking, you were ready to have a baby, and now there's going to be at least a year when you won't, you may still try afterward, but you may run out of luck. Uh, if you're a younger woman, if you're 30 or something and you haven't started having children, you sort of had in mind you were going to have three maybe. You may not squeeze in three. You may only have two now. Yeah. That's the evidence. This is not just me talking as a man. I'm, you know, uh, <laughs> one step removed from this. But, yeah, that's what the evidence shows. And even the sentiment as the pandemic plays out, there was a, a survey you, you quoted in the article as well that surveyed 2,000 American women in late April, early May. And, yeah. they, and they found that 34% of them wanted to delay pregnancy or have fewer kids because of the pandemic. You know, it's just kind of the uncertainty of the whole thing. Uh, you know, a vaccine isn't going to come mm-hmm. till early next year, most likely. There's still months. And, you know, a lot of people do take the time to plan a pregnancy and all that. And right. it, it just kind of throws all that out of the window. Peter, tell us some of the early indicators that we're seeing, because there was a bunch of different things in here. The weddings were slowing down, people getting birth control and stacking that up was going up as well. Yeah, like the wedding reports, a company I talked to said that surveys show slightly over 60% of weddings that were scheduled for 2020 been postponed until either later this year or 2021. I talked to a company called the Pill Club, which uh, founded... A 65% increase as of last month in new patient requests for uh, Anovera, which is a vaginal ring that prevents pregnancy for up to a year, so long-lasting birth control. Actually, even talked to a woman from Planned Parenthood 
who said she's getting more women coming to her who had pregnancies that they wanted to terminate. So it's pretty darn serious. And the results of all of this, obviously less babies, babies are cute, all that stuff. But you have to think of the long-term effects of it. Fewer children means fewer consumers in the future, fewer workers, less taxpayers, and then the effect on our older Americans, you know, uh, Social Security gets thrown out of the whack when people aren't contributing. So it's kind of this big old thing that's all tied together. And, uh, you know, I like the way you put it in the article, too. The flip side of it, people say, well, it could be bad on that front, but it could also be good for the planet because there's less Mm -hmm. people causing pollution. Exactly. There was a study out of Sweden a few years ago. They found that if you're thinking about how to save the planet, the single best thing you can do is to have fewer children because children consume resources. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, is there any good news on this front? I mean, the numbers are what they are now. The early predictors were starting to see them. The birth rate has been going down for a while. Yeah. And as we said, it's tough to make up that time. And, uh, right. you, know, it's, you know, a lot of people don't just step it up and start having a ton of babies right away. So is there any good news on the horizon with all this? Well, call it good or bad, but because, again, different people have different attitudes about this, but the one idea that the birth rate might trend back upward is that when you survey women about how many babies they want to have, it turns out they have been having fewer than their target number. So if women start achieving what they want, then you would see the birth rate rise again. Peter Coy, economics editor at Bloomberg Businessweek. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. They are asking customers to please wear a mask, to pull it up over their nose because it's not enough to have it around their chin, or even just covering their mouths. And sometimes these exchanges escalate and pose a real risk to people who are trying to keep their businesses afloat. Joining us now is Emily Davies, reporter focusing on small businesses for The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Emily. Yeah, thank you for having me. We've been monitoring how America is reopening, how businesses are getting back Obviously, we've seen a spike in coronavirus cases across the country, which is prompting a lot of states and counties to roll back some of that reopening and and still stricter rules. Uh, Masks continue to be one of these things. I think you mentioned it's a part of the coronavirus culture war over face coverings. It continues to be a very polarizing thing. But for these businesses that are trying to get back to business, that are trying to reopen and trying to make money for themselves and families or employees, everything... There's a lot of rules that they have to follow. Face coverings is a rule in a lot of places. But still, we'll see patrons trying to go in there without a face mask. And it creates this really sticky situation for employees, the managers trying to enforce those rules, trying to make people happy. It's kind of a mess all over the place. Emily, tell us about it because you spoke to a lot of different businesses and how they've been going through this. First, I want to say that the vast majority of business owners in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area say that most of their interactions with customers are very pleasant. People wear masks. They practice social distancing. But many of the bartenders I spoke to, restaurant owners I interviewed, said that at least once a day, they are asking customers to please 
wear a mask, to pull it up over their nose because it's not enough to have it around their chin or even just covering their mouths. And sometimes these exchanges escalate and pose a real risk to people who are trying to keep their businesses afloat and serve people for the first time in a long time indoors. And so there are a few particularly notable incidents in D.C. and its neighboring suburbs in the last week. One was at a restaurant in D.C. where a customer threw plexiglass at a worker and employee who asked them to wear a mask. Another was at a coffee house in Old Town, Alexandria, where a man refused to wear a mask and later came back and threw chicken and rice at her window. So these employees and these owners of local establishments are scared to come to work oftentimes because they're worried about being exposed to the coronavirus or worse, assaulted because of the restrictions. And that's the unfortunate thing is the way we do things now in the media and society. Maybe these cases weren't elevated to that, but right away people pull out phones and start recording things and then things go viral. And that's just kind of the cycle that we are in, unfortunately, right now. So as you mentioned, a lot of the businesses are saying everybody's playing by the rules, playing nicely, but these crazy people, you know, kind of get elevated on that front. And and that's the bad part. But what are these business owners, what kind of tactics are they using to keep the maskless customers out or to even confront them and say, hey, you know, you should be wearing it properly? So what I heard from the vast majority of people I spoke to is they pull up CDC guidelines or restaurant association guidelines and point to official policy to explain that this is not their decision. These people are not trying to make their customers' lives harder. It's mandated that they do it this way and they are playing by the rules. So they try to take the anger and redirect it to the CDC. From what I've heard, sometimes it works, but you know, in these rare instances, as you mentioned, it does escalate and they call the police. And that's the the irony, I think it is, is that some of these people that don't want to wear masks want the economies to reopen. So these business owners are just trying to follow by the rules so that they can reopen. And it just causes this big old mess there. But you did mention that sometimes police have been called. I know they're trying to de-escalate a lot of things. They don't really want to fine anybody for not wearing a mask. But so how have police responded to these types of calls when they do get them? I spoke with police departments in Maryland and Virginia and a bit with the police in D.C. And they all said, we do not want to arrest people. We do not want to cite people. We really want to de-escalate and basically use public education. That's the phrase that they use to explain how they address these incidents. That means really that they try to reason with the person refusing to wear a mask, explain why it's important and why it's inappropriate to harass a business owner for enforcing these policies. Emily Davies, reporter covering small businesses for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.